This podcast is produced by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society. CDSS provides programs and resources like this podcast that support people in building and sustaining vibrant communities through participatory dance, music, and song. Want to support this podcast and our other work? Visit cdss.org to donate or become a member today. One and a half around. Now below one couple and forward six. Look around to the right when you balance. Look around to your right and you balance once again. Swing your partner. Hey there, I'm Mary Wesley, and this is From the Mic, a podcast about North American social dance calling. Nicely done. Through conversations with callers across the continent, we'll explore the world of square, contra, and community dance callers. Why do they do it? How did they learn? What is their role on stage and off in shaping our dance communities? What can they tell us about the corner of the dance world that they know and love the best? Each episode, we'll talk to a different caller, but they all have something in common. A spark, a desire to lead, to share joy, to invite movement, to stand in that special place between the band and a room full of dancers, or people who don't yet know that they're dancers. And from the mic say, find a partner, let's dance. You bow to your partner, bow to your corner, element left your corner, run on home and swing your own, you swing your partner, go round and round. Head two couples, go forward and back, sides divide. Make lines at the heads, go forward and back. Are you ready? Head couples, right hands across, go once and a half. That is the voice of Boston area dance calling legend, Lisa Greenleaf. Lisa has been calling for many years throughout the USA and internationally for dances, weekends, and week-long camps. Her specialties include traditional and contemporary contras, fun squares, challenging dances of all shapes and sizes, and caller training. Fun fact, I took Lisa's Contra Callers course at Pinewoods when I was first learning to call. Lisa likes to emphasize community and communication in her workshops, guiding participants to get the most out of their dancing or calling experience. She has a keen interest in understanding group dynamics as well as the power of positive leadership. In our conversation, we talk about Lisa's journey from the dance floor to the caller's mic and the mentors she's had along the way, in particular the prolific dance choreographer Larry Jennings. We explore the driving factors behind her deep love for and commitment to leading social dance and get into the nuts and bolts of how she thinks about her role as a caller. She also shares her insights on building strong dance communities. There's much to learn about there, and plenty of laughs along the way. So let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Everybody swing your partners on. Welcome to From the Mic. This is Mary Wesley, and I'm here with Lisa Greenleaf. 
Hello, Lisa. Hey, Mary. Happy to be here. I'm so glad you're here. So excited to talk with you today. And we're going to talk all about calling. Uh, and I thought to start out, would you mind just introducing yourself as a caller and, and telling us a little bit about um, maybe even how you started dancing or getting into this dance world and then how you found your way to the mic from there? Sure. I live right now in Bolton, Massachusetts, so I'm a New England caller. And I started in New England, but I was at a girls' camp as a staff member, and we had a square dance. And now, of course, I know it was a basic community dance, and I loved it. I was eating it up, and there were two young men on our staff who were very cute who said to my friend and me, would you like to learn how to swing? They were contra dancers, and they were dying. We were doing elbow swings and hopping up and down. Um, and having a great time, but they were just dying for a good old New England bus step swing. So they taught us, and I tell you, that did it. And I said, what is this? And they said, it's called contra dancing, and there's one Saturday night. Do you want to come with us? Ah, so I think for most people, that personal invitation can be really, really powerful. And so I was hooked, and when I went to graduate school in Chicago, I did everything. I did contra traditional squares, clogging, because old time music was really big in Chicago, and English dancing, international dancing, Scottish dancing, you name it, if it had dancing, Morris dancing, I did it all. I just loved it so much. And I was very attracted to what the caller was doing. I liked that because I liked being a teacher. And so it wasn't long after that I'd moved to New England and I was so lucky. This is one of those gifts from the universe and I knew it when it happened. I was teaching Morris dancing on the Morris team. I was teaching the beginners and we had a big band. We had an accordion and a mandolin and a drum and a fiddle. And back in those days, so this would have been the early 1980s, mm -hmm. a caller would get $100 for calling an evening, but the band would have to share $100. And this band said, we wanna start our own series and have it be equal, equal opportunity so that we will share it equally which means we probably have to have a brand new caller who doesn't know any better. <laughs> so, so they asked me, would you be our caller? They'd never heard me call a Contra. Now, I'd been going to every caller's course I could at any dance weekend, but maybe that was three or four at that point. But the first dance I called was at my own series <laughs> with a band called Four on the Floor. And I would go down to Kingston, Rhode Island, where they were, and I would listen to them play so I could understand their music. And that was their idea. And boy, was that great. They said, you know, we're going to have to um, work with you to figure out what tunes to play. So that was my introduction to listen to how these tunes feel and match them up. And the other really fortunate thing I had was a lot of friends on the floor who really wanted my success and you know, I had to get out of my own way to understand that because they did give me feedback. And when I, when I latched onto that feedback and realized, oh my gosh, this is gold. This is like having your spies out on the floor. <laughs> um, that, that really helped me become a better caller. So I was really lucky. I was really lucky. And then being in New England, then I started to call um, up in the Boston area 
mm-hmm. which was really scary and frightening, but I did it. And then from there, I, um, I was able to have Larry Jennings be my mentor. And that's a whole other story. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay. Yeah. I feel like I have a few, uh, follow-up questions. I'd love to wander around a little bit more in this, this kind of origin story. And, um, and part of this will just depend on maybe what stood out to you in, in those, um, those sort of formative moments. I'm, I'm wondering if you can remember anything about your, maybe your first few times at the mic calling, you know, what, <laughs> what, what was it like to, uh, cause it sounds like you, something drew you to that caller role. You were intrigued. Do you remember what it was like when you got on stage and started seeing what it was actually like to do it? Not, you know, not, a, not teaching a Morris team, you know, just at, at a practice, but being on a microphone in front of a room full of people being the voice <laughs> in charge. Well, I, I suppose the first uh, impressions were made when I went to these callers workshops because what I learned was, holy cow, I know how to dance these dances, but I don't know how to teach them. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was alarming, um, but also a big opportunity to, to start learning how you actually teach these dances. Um, the stagecraft came really easily to me. You know, at this girls' camp, what I was doing, I was teaching music and drama. Mm-hmm. So that kind of performance aspect and being on stage, that, that was not a problem. I do remember that for this Kingston, Rhode Island series, my very first dance, I had to buy a microphone for it, a wired mic. That was an investment. Oh, wow. And that made me feel very powerful. <laughs> I have my own microphone um, and I'm making a commitment to this. So um, I, I think also just working with the band was really, really exciting to me because they were, they were sitting right next to me. And to feel that energy that they had was, um, that's still one of my favorite things about calling Mm. is that I get to stand next to this and be the first part, you know, be the first thing there that's absorbing all this, this cool energy that they're providing. And then what else, what kept you on the path of being a caller? Because, you know, you, you've kind of, done a lot of it <laughs> in a lot of different <laughs> different places and and um you know beyond contras lots of different styles so you know do you think of it as as your vocation how do you think of of calling in in your life yeah actually it is it's my career it's it's what i love to do um even though you only make tens of dollars people laugh when they say uh, when they hear you say it's your career but it really is. And, and I think the hallmark is that I still love learning about it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one of the things I love to talk about when I do a caller's workshop is I'm not here to present everything that I know. I'm here to learn from you as well. And I'm going to learn. And what I love is I can remember where I learned certain things, where I first heard somebody say on a box the net, hey, look what happens. You both raise your arm. And this light bulb went up. Oh, it's not the gent twirling the ladies. You're both doing it. You know, that kind of thing. I can remember where I learned certain phrases in teaching. Um, and I'm just so grateful about that. And I always learn every time I work with a new band. 
or even when I work with an old band and they have new tunes. Yeah. So it, it's about, are you still interested in learning, I think? And I sure, I, I sure as heck am. Yeah. Again, it sounds like you, you kind of learned how to learn, you know, from, yeah. from working with your friends. And, and you mentioned Larry Jennings as a, as a mentor. So what was that? Oh, boy, that like? was tough. Oh, boy, was that tough. Anybody who knows Larry who wrote Give and Take um, and some other books, uh, you know, he was he was a hardcore engineer and he approached his thinking about dancing that way. Although I will say many people don't know this about Larry. On the New England Folk Festival board, we thought of him as Mr. Neffa because Larry always reminded us to be human because it's so easy to go down the rabbit hole of, well, these people didn't do this right. And he says, look, it's Nefa. We, we oil the squeaky wheel. We try to think the best of people. And I learned, I think that's a great lesson. And I, I also learned from him, um, for example, with hall management, back when I was calling in the Cambridge area, the Thursday dance was at the VFW, and it's a wide hall, so we'd have five or six lines. And you tried to spread those lines out, and back in the day, the 80s and 90s, the center sets were theoretically the place to be, and sometimes they just got too crowded. And he taught me how to move people around to make the whole hall viable. But when those center sets got really crowded, and the rest of the hall was okay, he'd say to me, so they want to be crowded, let them. I thought, oh, okay. He's like, if you think the whole hall is fine and they're just crowded, then you're fine. Then you're good. But if there's a line that's too short, yeah, then I, I need to, to pay attention to that. That's part of my role. Yeah. But otherwise, Larry was so tough. He was really tough. But I'll tell you, one of the things I learned from him that I appreciate the most is I learned how to diagram dances Wow. from him. Yeah. And now I can do it with just dots on a piece of paper and understand the flow of a dance. And I'll tell you a story. This came in really handy because I was at NEFA and they needed an emergency caller for one of the contra medleys, one of these half an hour, no walk through six dances in a row. And I was told you're dance number four. And I looked at it and I got out my pen and something was flagging in my brain. I got out my pen and was doing my little dots. And I said, this dance doesn't progress. <gasps> I was so proud of myself. <laughs> I told Larry later, and we quickly substituted another dance. So I know lots of people have their little salt and pepper shaker things, but the nice thing about diagramming is you can actually save it. Right. Like math homework, like math homework. Yeah. <laughs> Did that come from, from Larry's engineering background, I assume? Yeah, I mean, he, he taught me things about, you know, when things happen on a diagonal, then therefore this has to happen. And, you know, when you go forward and back, that's really a zero. Well, what's a zero? A zero means nothing's happened. You're still where you are. Oh, mm. <laughs> you can see more complicated or more filled out diagrams in some of the old square dance books or even in some of the old international and contra dance books where they might actually have line drawings of, in the old days, men and women. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was just arrows and either a carrot, just a, a, a two-line arrow for the woman's role back in those days, and an arrow with a line down the middle for the men's role. Mm -hmm. And you move those around, you figure out where the top of your hall is, and you write down the name of the figure, balance and swing, 
and you've numbered them one and two because you have the first couple and the second couple. And so then you draw what happens after the balance and swing and which way you have to be facing. Mm -hmm. So the arrows might be facing each other for a balance and swing because you're starting from duple and proper. But if then the next figure is forward and back, those arrows are now facing across to their partner. And that's really key because it, it tells you where's your partner in all of this. Because for me, when I'm teaching other callers, I like to remind them, your partner is your anchor. If you can get your dancers um, focused on where their partner is, that really helps those visual dancers figure out how to end figures. Mm-hmm. And, and what, are those, what does that diagramming process give you in your, when you're at the mic? Oh, reassurance, Mary, that's a great question because, uh, you know, hey, these days there's some really cool looking dances on the internet and um, I may think I'm prepared and then I'm about to call a dance and I suddenly have this flash of adrenaline of uncertainty and I will quickly diagram it. Does this really work? Oh, on, oh, yes, it does. On stage, on the stage. do that. Wow. Yeah, I mean, the, the dancers are dancing, but I'm I'm just having my own little fit of of uh, insecurity. And I'm up there with my little dots and my little arrows going, da, 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 da. oh yeah, it progresses. Phew. Okay. And what it shows me usually is, oh, this dance, you always do this on this dance. There's this weird thing right here. And sure enough, it's written down. I just didn't read it. Mm. So yeah, diagramming. I love diagramming. It's great. And, and what's an example of like a, of a storyline in a dance for you? Um, it's body flow, basically. And body flow, and is there a, I think Gary would, uh, Larry would probably use the word gimmick. So if, if, there's, a, if there's a Rory O'Moore move, the everybody in a wave balancing right and left and sliding over, that's the big gimmick of the dance. And so does that fit in and does it flow? And is it satisfying? Because, you know, in an evening's program, I want to have a lot of variety as a dancer. I don't want to have every dance have a wave in it just because the caller likes a lot of waves. Mm -hmm. I want variety. Mm -hmm. So that's the whole storyline thing. And that's why callers should dance. Boy, I tell you, callers should dance. Yes. And if you can't dance, cultivate some good dance friends on the floor to tell you when you've called a real clunker. (laughs) (laughs) Your spies, as you called them. Yeah. You know, one of my tricks, which I love to do, is if I have a new dance that I'm not quite sure about. Uh, I, I will tell the dancers before I call it, this is a brand new dance. Let me know if you like it. And it does two things. It, it sets up this expectation that they're going to help me a little bit. And it also buys me some goodwill because if it's really terrible, they're going to forgive me. But you know, one of the things I'll do is I can tell if they're bad. And so if it's bad, I'll cut it off quickly. And then I don't say anything about it. I go on to the next. But if it's good, I will say, did you like it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay, great. Give me feedback. (laughs) And people do. You know, they give you teaching feedback, you know, so it's great. Hmm. Use your resources. Dancers are great resources. Yes. Let's see. There's so so many little um, breadcrumbs you're leaving me that I want to follow up on. But but maybe you want to spend just a little bit more time learning about, you know, how, how you developed your career, your career as a caller, you know, so you talked about getting to start at your own, your own dance series, um, getting into the Boston scene, 
Uh, I certainly have known you as a as a traveling, a touring caller, also a teaching caller. Lisa, I took my first callers workshop with you at Pinewood. I know it was great. <laughs> um, so can you maybe just fill that out a, a little bit more? You know, how did you uh, explore all all the different you know work you could do as as a caller? Well, the, the dance series in Kingston gave me a once a month dance, which was great, with a, a known quantity crowd, which was really great because, you know, then I could feel a bit more sure about myself. Uh, and then I started to get hired for other local dances. And again, calling in the Boston area was nerve wracking when you have Larry and Ted Snella in the back of the hall with their arms crossed over their chests watching you the whole evening. But you know what I did? You know what I did? I, I was intimidated by that, but I, I felt really good. But I had a bunch of friends there, and I, I said to them, like, after the second dance, I called them up and I said, would you guys whoop and yell after every dance? And they did. It was great. <laughs> That's so smart. Just made me feel better. And then I think, you know, especially in New England, we have so many opportunities for little dances that you can do and still be in your own bed at night. So I got hired to do more and more dances in the broader New England area. And then at a certain point, I realized I was still going to dance camps a lot, just, you know, as a dancer, taking classes, observing, you know, the other role models I've had, are, it's and any caller who calls that I, and that I get to dance to is a role model for me. You can, if you keep your mind open, you, you learn a lot. Mm-hmm. And I was really lucky again because I'd been working a lot with um, Amy Larkin, who at that point was Amy Richardson, the fiddler, and Larry Unger. And they had a great band called Uncle Gizmo. And they said, hey, we want to go on tour in the Midwest. Will you be our caller? So that's how that started. That was your first tour? Yeah. How, how was it? It was great. It was great. And it, it included a dance weekend and some one night dances, you know, and what was tough, I think, on the learning curve was the one night dances. Because just dropping in somewhere. Yeah, because you have no idea what this community is like. And you're, you're relying on what the organizer says. And yet they're very different from the dances we have back home, maybe. Mm -hmm. So you have to learn to be flexible and um, I figured out, well, that's part of the fun. You know, where are these people? Where are they coming from? What do they want? Yeah. And what, you know, so what have you observed in your, in your travels? Do you, do you feel like you <laughs> notice, you know, regional differences and, and how do you adapt on the fly when you come into a new, a new setting or a new community? Well, yeah, through experience, I've learned for me, it's really important for me to understand the intention of the group who's hired me. I mean, I, intention is such a big, big word for me. What's my intention as a caller? Um, what's the intention of this group? And adjust my presentation and expectations accordingly. I mean, I, I'm sure many callers can relate to this. I remember going to a dance actually near, nearby to me here where I had prepared an intermediate program with lots of new dances. I was very excited. And of course, most of the dancers that night turned out to be beginners. And I felt this tension in myself because I wanted to do something else. 
But, you know, I gave myself a talking to. Like, these people are here. They paid their money. You better get your head in the game. Mm-hmm. And um, show them a good time. And in doing that, I eventually myself had a good time. Hmm. Because they were about having, a, you know, and I've also had another one which was really great which I thought was just a regular kind of community dance. And I get there, it's really tiny, but I loved the hall. The band was a hoot. They weren't great, but they were having a good time. And the dancers, they weren't really interested in being told what to do. Hmm. And again, that presents an interesting tension. And when I realized, oh my gosh, they're here just to have a good old time. And, you know, then I could adjust it. Mm-hmm. And I did a lot of silly stuff, a lot of fun stuff. I figured out what the band liked to play. The band was into show tunes. Okay, we're going to do squares to show tunes, folks. You know, what a hoot. And the best part is I had a great time because I was able to adjust my expectations. But if you go into those thinking, darn it, I'm going to teach them how to dance. Well, that that may not be why they hired you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I, I definitely want to talk more about intention. I, I want to ask you one more thing about kind of his history and background, just because because it's a, a time and place that I wasn't, but that uh, has uh, affected me a lot as a dancer and a caller. I hear you describing this, the Boston Contra scene, that it was, it was, you know, it dun, was dun, intimidating. Dun. Yes. And you have Larry Jennings, you have Ted Sinella, you know, I mostly know these as names on my dance cards of, of, of you know, uh, iconic classic contra dances and square dances that are, or, or triplets that I call, you know, um, right. but I wonder if you can kind of take us inside what that scene was like a little bit more. And also, what was it like as as a newcomer? And and I don't know if this came into play, but what was it like as a woman? Um, yeah, you know, I'm, good I'm question, Mary. Of, I'm aware that you know we're hearing a lot of of names of male callers at that at that time. So, well, I didn't appreciate it till much later. But when I was in Chicago, uh, the callers there were there were women callers. Masha Goodman was calling at the Chicago Barn Dance. So that was important to me much later, I realized, um, just that she was a role model there. Because when I got to New England, there weren't very many female callers at all. Were there any that I really remember Susan Elberger was calling? And otherwise, it would have been traveling callers, but we didn't have a series that really featured traveling callers till much later. So... It was, and this would have been back in the 80s. I didn't feel it so much as sexism. I didn't feel it as um, being a woman was a problem. I just felt that being new was was the challenge, Mm -hmm. that I had to prove myself. And I think that's pretty normal, that you feel that you have to prove yourself. Because I'll tell you that once I started conversing with Larry, and especially with Ted Sinella, as a young caller, Oh my gosh, Ted was so generous to me. And, you know, back in the day, you'd, you'd write him a letter. I had, a, I had a question, I think, about his wonderful dance, Fiddleheads, and he answered. And it was so generous. And he basically taught me how to teach it. In, in a letter? Yeah, well, Mary, this was back in letter days. Yes. Email wasn't yes. invented yet. <laughs> in a letter. Well, and you know what Larry would do? Larry would write critiques and letters, which sounds 
heavy, mm -hmm. but it was the best thing I learned how to do. You know, because another great thing I learned from Larry, I finally learned how to set boundaries. This is when you know that that your relationship with your mentor is starting to change because he used to come up to me after each dance and say, well, you know, you didn't do as well on that dosi -si do as you. And I finally said, Larry, tell me at the end of the dance. Yes. And he would, he would have made notes. And then I said, Larry, write it in a letter because I wanted to enjoy what I had just done. Yes. And then it was fine. He would write it in a letter and I could approach it very intellectually. You know, the other thing Larry did for me with teaching, I give him so much credit for, for my ability to teach well. I was really fortunate because once I was established in Massachusetts, another band called Unstrung Heroes wanted to have a series. And they said, hey, would you be our caller? And I said, sure, but we have to make our dance different because there were a lot of dances. And I said, let's have an advanced dance. Well, that was interesting mm -hmm. because there, were, there was no advanced contra dance. But I learned really quickly that first year, you couldn't call it an advanced dance because the material was advanced, but the dancers weren't. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so I changed it to challenging. And what I love is I see other groups now calling challenging contras because that puts the onus on the dancer. Yeah, I'm going to the challenging contra, which means, okay, you're going to be challenged. And Larry supplied a lot of my material. I have to say most of which I don't even call anymore, but it was a laboratory. Mm -hmm. And he and I would talk as peers. I, you know, secretly he wanted to be a caller and he just didn't have the, the stage presence for it. Hmm. So he and I had this great relationship because of that. So I could call the dance and then he and I would talk about these dances. And the dancers would help. Right. I mean, having dancers who were not advanced was actually a great thing for my teaching. Because <laughs> yeah. I had to learn how to do it. And from there... I created something called Lab Rats, which was I rented a tiny little hall and I brought recorded music and I invited 24 handpicked dancers. And I said, your job is to, to tell me if you like this dance and then to inform me how to teach it. And I tried out all kinds of new dances. And what I loved about that was it also created 24 more spies for me on the floor. Yes. <laughs> because they got used to, to hearing how I needed to get the feedback and they would they knew that it was safe to approach me at a regular dance and say, hey, that new dance you called, you know, did you know it was really terrible if you're dancing the Lark's role? Oh, no, thank you. So I encourage the, uh, callers to do that. It's like having a kitchen junket. Yeah. yeah. And for me, it was all about choreography and, and help me teach it. Corner, Alamand left. Back to your part there, Alamand right. Fortunes, star left. Now pick up your partner. Head ladies roll back for the Chinese fan with an Alamand right to the opposite fan. Head ladies roll back for the Chinese fan, Alamand right to the partner. Now wheel around, go once and a half and you hang on tight. Now ladies in the middle with a star by the right. Head gents roll back for the Chinese fan, left hand to the opposite lady. Head gents roll back. To your partner. Now keep the star going, but when you get home, let go and swing your partner's all. It's so cool to hear kind of the origin stories of some of these things, which, you know, you definitely imparted in, in the caller's course.
that first callers course I took with you, I remember talking about, you know, giving and receiving feedback and, and how can we do that in, in, you know, a kind and, and helpful, helpful way. <laughs> and yeah, sort of forming, forming your team of, of peers, such important things. Um, well, so maybe we'll get more into, into the abstract, but I just hear so much, um, such a spark and so much love in your voice when you talk about all the different parts of calling, the teaching, the working with the band, the, the kinesthetic, you know, finding the flow, finding the story. Like what, what is it that you love about this? <laughs> um, yeah. Another thing that I try to, to, to get across in my callers workshops because I, I do appreciate how difficult it is to be in these workshops that are intense, these intensives, because you get up to call and you're about to get feedback. And of course, as you said, we try to establish a safe, supportive feedback loop. But I love learning about the language of calling. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of a, a hidden sociologist in me. I might say something and the dancers do something unexpected. To me, that is wonderful because I think, wow, look what they just did. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it might be really uh, tempting to blame them, but um, instead look at it as an opportunity. Wow, that was fascinating. And then that's the kind of conversation you can have with your peers. I love that kind of conversation. Has anybody had this happen on this dance? You know, that's another regional difference I've noticed that I may have the language down perfectly for an intermediate dance that has a little twist in it. And then I go one state over and these people look at me with blank (laughs) stares. And I think, wow, that didn't work. (laughs) And if you can train yourself to do that, that to me is the joy of this dynamic thing that is always changing, Mm -hmm. is how do I make this work? You know, the other thing I really love, as I said, is I'm so lucky that I've had these great musicians to work with. I rarely have had a bad band. I always learn from the bands. I either learn things that I need to do to deal with with bands that aren't as skilled, but I always learn something. And I think one of the best stories I have about that is how I got interested in that. Besides that very first band saying, you need to come to our rehearsal. I was calling a weekend in Santa Barbara, California, and the band was Nightingale, which at the time was one of the top Northern style bands. And they were writing a lot of their own tunes and they had very unique arrangements. And I remember asking for a smooth tune and I got French Canadian, which to me wasn't smooth because French Canadian is very punctuated. It was a very downbeat. And I looked over and I realized that Keith Murphy was playing the piano very smoothly. It didn't sound smooth, but that's how he was playing it. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is a disconnect. So for that entire weekend, I would ask for a tune and then I would take notes on what I was hearing. And afterwards I would ask Becky Tracy, the fiddler, what's the name of that tune? And by the end of that weekend, I had a database. And that's what I do now for bands that I work with a lot who have their own tunes. I have a database of their tunes. Wow. Yeah, can you talk more about working with bands and and how you how you think about matching music and movement? 
Yeah. Um, you know, one of my favorite things to do in that callers class that you were in is, um, do you remember this? The One of the assignments is that you have to go with your buddies and interview a rhythm player and a melody player. Yes. And, and ask them about their pet peeves, because secretly what I'm getting is intel for myself. <laughs> <laughs> I remember learning from that class because of what the class had found out. For example, Larry Unger said, please don't call a no walk through medley as the last dance of the evening, mm -hmm. because that is our last chance to shine. And we'd really rather not have the caller talking over it the whole time. And I remember my eyes were as big as saucers. Oh, I didn't know that. Thank you. I'm glad I learned that. As far as the music, um, I feel it. Um, I mean, I'm a kinesthetic visual person with, with a really good ear. So I, I feel their tunes. And I can feel where the balance needs to be, or I can feel that it's really smooth. And, you know, again, dancing, that, mm -hmm. that informs, you know. And it's good. The thing is, even though I might have this database, I don't insist that they play these tunes. I might say, could you play something like this that has that, you know, that thing on the A1? Could you play something like that? Although there are some bands that I program because they like that. They're like, oh, you have your database. Just tell us what to play. But that's very rare, folks. That's very, very rare. Uh, the Latter-day Lizards like it when I do that. And it's always up to negotiation. So they don't feel like playing something. But that's another one of my favorite workshops to do is, is um, play tunes and have callers walk around. Mm -hmm. What figure do you want to do with this? And again, don't be totally tied to it. That's why it's good to dance, because I know I've been surprised. I've danced a dance I've called usually to a smooth tune, and the band isn't playing anything smooth. And I realize, hey, this works really well with this chunky tune. Who knew? So stay open. But it, to me, it really is about how does my body react to this tune? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you are really energized by something being new or, or different or unexpected um, or or seeing kind of a possibility for, for change. Are there times when change doesn't feel good? <laughs> you know, like are, have, there, have there been moments when it's like, actually, I, I like the other way or, <laughs> you know, where, where do you, how do you navigate that when, when, you know, it, or, or do you, you know, do your tastes come up against um, change, change going in a direction that you're like, I, I don't know about that. Oh, sure. Well, musically, if, if I felt a tune hasn't worked well for a dance, I figure out if I can tell the band right then and there or if I need to wait until the break. Right. <laughs> in, in which case, I'll go to somebody and say, hey, can I talk to you about that one tune? Um, that didn't really fit for me. And it's a conversation. Uh, how do you experience that tune? What a great question. Mm -hmm. And, you know, usually the band is aware of it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we kind of felt that. Sorry, we didn't know what we were doing. We were arguing. And it's like, oh, okay, no worries, no worries. Or they're surprised. And then I'm like, well, give me the name of the tune. And I make a note, do not ask for this tune. Um, <laughs> there you go. I mean, and non-musically speaking, of course, there have been so many changes recently, which I think is great. And I have come up against some, some interesting things, I guess, kind of like against my value system, which surprised the heck out of me. And so I was actually kind of grateful for it. And that's when we were having the big discussion in 
modern contradancing about changing the role terms to gender free. Mm-hmm. And I was there at the beginning of it. I was there when um, the lesbian and gay community was using bands and bare arms. Mm-hmm. And we had armbands around to, you know, to, to designate the traditional gents role kind of thing. And then in New England, we tried jets and rubies, and now it's larks and robins and larks and ravens. But at one point, people wanted lead and follow. And I was stunned at my reaction because I said, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Because Contra is an equal opportunity dance form. There is no lead and follow. The caller has already told you what you're going to do. And there are plenty of times when the person on the right is actually leading the figure. Uh-huh. And words matter. And if you have this lead follow, the followers may not be really paying attention. Whereas there's a really crucial move right here where the person on the right does actually have to initiate a little bit of the action. And luckily, there were some other callers who were vociferous about that as well. And I don't think it's really an issue now. It was when when groups were trying to decide. And a group wanted to hire me. And I said, sure, but I, I'm not going to use lead and follow. I'm going to use Larks and Robbins. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay, no problem. Yeah. How do you how do you kind of navigate those choices that you might have to make as, as a caller, um, especially in terms of if a community or organizers are asking you to deliver a certain, you know, a certain thing, whether it's it's the dance role terms that you're using or the styles of dances that you're calling, you know, how much do you respond to what you're kind of what you're being hired to do? <laughs> and then and mm-hmm. then how when do you you mentioned your value system, you know, like where where and when do you tap into that sort of that personal compass and and decide Mm. you know decide to maybe make a a different choice yeah well you know choice is a great word mary because you can always say no i'm busy that weekend (laughs) right (laughs) and you don't have to tell them why you really don't want to do it and i will say that that whole lead follow thing i never had to turn down a gig because of it Mm -hmm. but i was prepared to that was so important to me that i was prepared to say nope i can only do it if it's this or this yeah um, yeah, that's a really good question, because I remember I did come up against this once when a West Coast group was having a weekend, and they said, we're trying to get squares into our, our dance weekend, and that's why we hired you. But what I figured out was they hadn't done the groundwork. Uh-huh. And so my just calling a square didn't quite go over well, and I had a really good talk with them later, and I said, you guys have to promote this before I come. You can't put this on the caller. This is your community decision. So, and it can be as simple as when that caller says, uh, you know, find three other couples for a square, that four of you immediately are going to squeal and yell with delight. (laughs) (laughs) It could be as stupid and silly as that, but it creates excitement. Um, Don't ask the caller to do that. And I've had that same issue, for example, and I think other callers have too, for a while. And who knows, it may come back. There, there's been a controversy about doing lifts and aerials while dancing, swing dance moves. Mm-hmm. And I've always said, please don't burden the caller with that. That has to come from the organizer. I'm happy to support what your uh, policy is, but then I'm going to say, please talk to so-and-so about this policy. Mm -hmm. I'll be happy to read the policy, but please talk to so-and-so if you have any questions about it. 
because I can't police it. Um, you know, and that probably just came from having good discussions with my buddies. How do we handle this? You know, you're mentioning mentioning a couple of different things that you've that you've done or communicated as a caller. I guess I guess I'm wondering more broadly, what would you describe as kind of the job of the caller? What's a caller's job description? What what's entailed? Wow. Well, <laughs> you know, because, yeah, uh, it's like, do, do people know that you're, you know, you're just describing sort of some some very particular sort of conversations and negotiations with some some organizers. And that's that is very different from standing at the mic and and teaching a, a do si do. So, you know. Oh, I see. Yes. Yeah. This is the sausage question. How yes. is the sausage yes. made for, a, for an entire <laughs> evening? For those of you who don't know. So I'm approached and I get hired. Um, I may or may not have any say in who the band is, and that's fine. Um, Some callers like to get in touch with the band ahead of time. Depends who the band is. It depends on also what this organization wants. If they say, we always do Money Musk after the break, then you bet I'm going to write that band and say, you guys know about this, right? (laughs) I've actually had that happen before. They were not ready for it. and then I have to spend a lot of time personally programming, which is putting the dances in an order that makes sense. And um, that can take a long time or it can be really quick. It just kind of depends. Um, you know, and that's a whole other discussion about how you build a good program. But of course, for me, it's about variety and building skill. Um, do I have to appear early to do the beginner's welcome workshop? Mm-hmm. Whole other set of philosophy there. You know, you touch base with the organizer, the announcements, all of that. You manage the time. And I I suppose the hardest part really is gauging what's happening while you're doing it. For me, I'm a guide and I am the linchpin in the evening. I'm not responsible for everything, but I'm the linchpin. I'm the one they're going to go to if they've got complaints. I'm the one who has to manage kind of what's the atmosphere in the hall. It's a big responsibility. Um... And I love doing it. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. And I also want to make sure the band is having a good time. Yeah. Is there anything you particularly want to play? That kind of thing. That it's a that's a strong, you know, image or, or feeling being the linchpin of of you know of a good time. Yeah. <laughs> the linchpin of a good time. Woo. Right. <laughs> that's what it is. That's what it is. But it's also knowing when to shut up. I mean, my golden time is when I do the walkthrough or when I'm organizing the hall or whatever. But once those musicians play, boy, you know, I, I don't want to be in people's faces too much. I want them really to enjoy the band. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think about influencing the dance community kind of off off the dance floor, you know, especially as, as someone who kind of travels and is has connections kind of across the country do you see yourself kind of influencing especially some of these broader conversations conversations happening about dance roles uh language kind of inclusivity as as a sort of pretty pretty visible active caller do you do you feel like you have a particular role or or how do you approach those those larger conversations uh, if I'm at a dance weekend, I do have a role to remember that I was hired to be there. So even when I'm not calling, if I'm on the dance floor especially, 
then I'm still uh, responsible for my behavior. <laughs> and that's, that's more of a personal choice that, you know, I want to be having fun, but I also want to be taking it. I want to be respectful. Basically, that's it. I want to be respectful of what's happening. And I want to be respectful of the community and learn about the community. That, to me, is the beauty of doing uh, weekends and weeks is, boy, I get to know these communities better. That's just fascinating to me. So I'm interested in talking with them. By the same token, I also have to know how to take care of myself. And that usually means getting the heck out of there and having quiet time, mm -hmm. <clears throat> either with some friends or, or by myself. Uh, so that's important. As far as these larger conversations, do I have a role? <laughs> Part of the problem with that is the online conversations have been difficult at times, and I've chosen not to, mm -hmm. to say much, except for lead follow. I did... I did preach a little bit about that pretty hard. But other than that, um, I think my role is actually to listen to my community and figure out what do they want. You know, and when, when the role term thing started happening in the Boston area, it was confusing to people, especially the people who'd been dancing a long time. And I, of course I understand that change is hard. And what I found for myself that worked was, well, go talk to these younger dancers and find out what's important to them. And I may not agree with them, but I get to know them as people. And that's what was happening was there was a big split in the community. And I think if you go talk to people and learn their names, learning people's names is, is a really powerful tool. Yeah. Because it means that you see them. I certainly know this is a caller, so... Yeah. I remember going up to one young man. There were there were a bunch of new younger women, really young women in their teens. And I went up to one young man and I called him by his name. And boy, did he look surprised. And he looked as though the teacher had just found him. This was <laughs> off mic. I went up to him personally. But I said, Mike, I need your help. He kind of gulped. And I said, there are these two, three, three young women over there and they need some good help. Can you and your friends help them out? And the look of relief on his face. And, a, and he did it. He did it. Ah. You know, and so that's the power of, of knowing your community and working with them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, you know, how I think about leadership, to me, a lot of it is about empowerment. Empowerment, for example, of the musicians. I want to make you look good. Let's make sure the sound is right. How can I help? And empowerment of the dancers. Help each other out. Wave your hand if you have a problem. One of my favorite things to say, for example, in squares, people often feel as though they're not doing the right thing in squares. I say, just keep moving. You'll have more fun. Yeah. <laughs> I empower you to keep moving, you know? And then of the organizers, how can we work together as a team? Mm -hmm. Like that community that wanted to get more squares. Sure, I'll help you, but let me give you some suggestions too. Yeah. Are there other things that you think people don't realize that the caller is is doing or thinking about when they're <laughs> when they're up there calling a dance? You know, because I, I think I think a lot of what I mean the visible part of calling is you're at the mic, you're teaching the dance, you're you're prompting the figures, and you're asking people to you know find a new partner, telling them when the dance stops and starts, telling the band when when to stop and start. Um, but you're, you know, you're the loudest voice in the room. You're, you're affecting, <laughs> you're affecting a whole, a whole hall full of people. Are there, are there 
you know, besides teaching the moves, stopping and starting the music, are there other ways that you're thinking about people's experience on the dance floor at a dance? Absolutely. And and I think this is the, you know, one of the second or third steps that a caller gets to. And usually they start to ask the question, how do you keep your eye on everybody? And that shows me, oh, good. They are ready to move away from looking at the foursome and looking at the set, which is what you have to do when you first start calling. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when I've called at festivals, people say, how the heck do you do that? And I said, you open your vision. It's really great. Everybody's swinging at the same time. And then you see this little ripple over there and they're rapids and you realize somebody's having trouble. <laughs> and you zoom in and you figure out, do I need to, to offer help or, or are they just going to get it? Um, so that's often a thing is, is one side having trouble yeah. and can I help and how, how can I help minimally, which is one of my favorite things to do. Mm-hmm. So being able to see the whole hall, I think is a, is a more advanced skill. Yeah. You know, and I think for anybody who wonders about calling, just ask a caller sometime, can I come up on stage and, and stand by you for one dance? And then you can negotiate which dance it is. And I love it because then they get this different view. They see what I'm doing. They see I have notes, that that I have a microphone. They see me communicating with the band. And then they go, whoa, this is more complicated. Yeah, I said it's more than just counting to eight. Right. Yeah, a lot more. (laughs) If you can count to eight, you can get started. But then beyond that, it's really fun. Just, you know, get up there and see what it looks like. handle it when something goes wrong and you and you, you you're not able to you know despite your minimal or or even maximum effort <laughs> or input you know it it doesn't get fixed how how do you handle that yeah that's experience oh my gosh that's experience and then um debriefing immediately with your peer buddies uh-huh <laughs> And what would you have done? I mean, I've certainly had those adrenaline moments. Oh, my gosh. And moments when you don't even understand what's going on. Yeah. You're trying to figure it out. Um, and I had a moment actually not too long ago where I completely missed a key direction in a dance, and I was flummoxed. And I remember at one point going, well, this has never happened with this dance look at it again, start over. And luckily somebody came up and said, I think it's a diagonal. And I went, oh, that's it. Huge relief. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's really hard not to shut down. That I think that just comes from experience. Yeah. And maybe, you know, saying, anybody got any suggestions? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> right. Although that's a terrifying, sometimes that's a terrifying moment. For me, anyway, I can remember having moments where I'm like, 
what do you you think we should do? And then you realize you've asked, you know, 200 people. Right. <laughs> what do you think we should do? And I'm right. supposed to be the one voice. <laughs> exactly. That's tricky. Exactly. Oh, well, you know, Mary, there are there are more crafty ways out of that. And again, that comes from experience. Um where you say things like, you know, we're actually having a sound problem up here. You're not. You're just having a personal sound program in your problem in your head. Uh, so we're actually going to stop and play a waltz. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. That's good. Oh, yeah. You can create a false problem that takes it off everybody. Because part of it is, uh, as, as a dancer, I can feel the stress. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why I love to experience callers making what I know are mistakes. And then watching them smooth themselves out of it. I mean, my my first role model for that was Tony Parks, hands down, on a Monday night, just, you know, Mr. Smooth. And there was a mistake, and I was a new caller, and I thought, oh, no. And then he just said something like, well, actually, let's make that go to the left. And then, and then everybody just moved. And I looked, and I said, nobody, it didn't bother anybody. Mm-hmm. And it was all in how he handled it. Mm-hmm. So when you're, when you're teaching, so I also, you know, I, I think of you as a, as a traveling caller, um, but I especially think of you as, as a, a teaching caller, um, uh, and kind of a, someone who's, who's mentored a lot of callers, um, myself included. And, um, so how do you, what, what's your sort of approach or philosophy when you are, when you are teaching people to call and, you know, how do you get people to that level where they, they have enough experience that they can, you know, bounce back from a mistake? How do you, how do you start from point zero and, and take them along? Well, usually the intensive workshops I do are for intermediate or advanced beginners so that they already know the basic structure and they've already gotten to practice the nuts and bolts, you know, what, what, what an A and a B are and how to cue the band, because that takes a lot of time. And I love doing that, that at weekends, like an introduction to calling. That's fine. But at a week-long workshop, I want to hit the ground running. And the first thing I think I have to do is um, establish this supportive feedback loop. And I credit Linda Henry in the CDSS office for helping me understand how to do that. It's all based on I statements, I as in the letter I. And boy, is it powerful to learn this method because then, of course, you can apply it in your own, your own life. But before we do anything, I, I let them know that we will give you feedback, but it's always going to be in the form of an I statement. So instead of you weren't loud enough, it's I couldn't hear you. Mm-hmm. Big difference mm-hmm. with that. And I got confused when I heard circle left that kind of thing, yeah. as opposed to, you said circle left and nobody else did it. And so learning how to say an I statement, it just relaxes everybody. Um, and of course, you know, you were there. I also do a bunch of theater exercises to get people loose and to let them know that we've got to be a group together. One of my favorite things is to get people to be excited about the fact that they made a mistake. And it's goofy, <laughs> but we walk around the first day going, looking each other in the eye saying, I just made a mistake. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, that was great. So, so that you take it as a learning opportunity, that it's exciting, that what can you learn from it? But then when I get into 
teaching about the walkthrough, my biggest thing, and I think it makes me a much better caller, think like a dancer. That is my phrase. I need that on a t-shirt. Think like a dancer. Callers get in their head (laughs) and they think about all the mechanics and this and that, but think like a dancer. Does a dancer really need to know all that extra stuff? If you think like a dancer, then you can pare down your words. You know, the other thing that's, that's important to me is learning styles so that you have two or three different ways of saying the same thing. Circle left three places until you face your neighbor up or down. So the three places is for the engineers. The three places to somebody who's just kinesthetic, they're not gonna get that until you say, until you face your neighbor up or down. Oh, got it. Think like a dancer. I love, yeah, I love the uh, the attention to language is definitely uh, was a big thing I learned from you. I, I remember that the word until being really critical, like what are, <laughs> what are some of your other, you know, little words that do a lot? Yeah. Every time you say a fraction, follow it with until. Right. Circle left three quarters until, and again, that's because you've got, or three places. And again, I learned that in my class. Somebody from the Midwest say, I don't use the fractions. I say how many places. And I could feel a resistance in my body. And then I thought, she's right. <laughs> <laughs> She's right. It's just because it says three quarters on my card doesn't mean I have to say three quarters. People have phobia about fractions. So saying three places until it tells them which way they're going to face, because in contrary, it's all kind of wiggly. You know, you, you can circle left three places and face across, or you can face up or down, or you can face into the middle. So that until helps the kinesthetic and visual dancers know where they're going to face. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, everybody knows my real pet peeve is going to. Yeah, we have a whole feedback loop for going to. Whenever anybody says it, we hum because um, just in the class, just in the class. (laughs) Because going to, to me, is one of those neurological quirks. It's buying you half a second more time while you figure out what you're going to (laughs) say. Going to implies the future. So long lines forward and back. Ladies, you're going to chain across. Now, as a dancer, what that means to me is there's a but. Mm-hmm. You know, Robin's, you're going to chain across, but do this first. No, Robin's chain across. Just give the figure. Circle left three places, and now you're going to do do Ah, no. Circle left three places, do do your neighbor. You can cut out that going to. It's great. And then there are times when you do need the going to. Larks, you're about to alamand, you're going to alamand left, but first look at that other gent and make sure you remember who they are or that other lark. Yeah, that kind of thing. That's really subtle. And unfortunately, I think I've inculcated every student I've ever had. So now whenever they hear somebody say going to, it, it bugs them. Yeah. <laughs> Their ears perk up. So, but it's just one of those small linguistic things. I think those are the two biggest ones. Yeah, yeah, can have so, have so much impact. I think, you know, the economy of words. Well, and I think also, as I mentioned before, knowing what your anchors are. So I, I really understand that a lot of dancers are visual. They're taking visual cues so that if you are working with beginners, orienting them to their partner is really great. Swing your neighbor, face across the set to your partner. Mm-hmm. You can actually watch them. This is what I love. This is the sociology of it. 
in that swing and you see them bobbling around and face your partner and you see them straighten up. Yes. Oh, my partner's over there. Yeah. So that's the fun part. That's the fun part. Um, oh, which brings me, which brings me, can I tell you a pet peeve? Yes. <laughs> Here we are, folks. Yeah. <laughs> Here we are, folks. You know, now we're really geeking out. Um, I don't really have that many pet peeves because um, I really enjoy just the people and the situations and all of that and talking about them with everybody. But uh, that example of, of people not quite getting the dance I have heard more than once somebody say, it's just a dance. And that makes me cringe. Mm -mm. Because for me, it's more than just a dance. Saying it's just a dance minimizes the importance of why we are all there. We're there to connect. And sometimes as a dancer, when you make a mistake or you're confused by the instructions, you feel out of sync with everybody else. So a better way to think about it is, you know, how can you get reconnected? Mm -hmm. I, when I hear it's just a dance, I feel as though I'm being brushed off when really what I'm saying is help. I want to get reconnected here. I feel left out. I want reassurance. Yeah. And you can do that from the mic. If you can tell that people are unsure of themselves, don't dismiss them. Uh, Reestablish this nice safety net for them. If right. you really think it's true. Like, yeah. you know what? I'm going to help you get through it. And so are these other people. I will help you. And if you're a dancer on the floor, you can say to somebody, hey, we've got six more rounds to get it right. Let's do it. Come on. Come on. Let's do it. <laughs> you know, invite them into feeling that that reconnection again. Right. Right. It's a dance. Let's let's enjoy it. <laughs> Let's, yeah, and that, that's part of Think Like a Dancer. A dancer's there to have fun and to connect with the music and with the other people. Mm -hmm. And so and I know sometimes callers say this to each other when, you know, we're really overanalyzing a situation and somebody might say, it's just a dance. I'm like, no, no, but it's important to me. And feel free to say to me, I think you're overanalyzing it. Um, feel free to say to me, well, Think of what you would experience as a dancer. Oh, yeah, yeah, I want that good connection. I want that good connection. So that's my really only my pet peeve. It's more than a dance, folks. It's life. It is. No, I, I, I think that's, that's a super important thing to, to hold on to. I love that thinking like a dancer. And, um, yeah, I'm thinking, too, of your, of your talking about um, your mentor, Larry, and uh, Larry Jennings and him imparting this idea of trying to think the best of people and mm, uh mm -hmm. and a couple of the times as we've been talking you've described this sort of having a moment of internal tension like oh you came you came to a dance and you and you created a really you know a great exciting program um <laughs> And expectations were different. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or, or yeah, people on the floor, you have a nice big wide hall and everybody's crowding in, into one, you know, into one set. How do you navigate those? How do you meet those, those moments of tension where your expectations are being challenged by, by reality in some way. Oh yeah. I've had a number of those. And again, it really does. It comes down to, again, to intention. Mm -hmm. um, what's, what's the intention of this group and can I align myself with that? Can I change my expectation 
So that really just means taking a step back. Um, you know, and sometimes taking that step back shows you, for example, you gave that example of a, uh, a hall where people are dancing only in one part of the hall and there are a few people on the other side of the set. That to me is a larger problem in that community. Mm-hmm. So understanding, okay, what can I do from the mic? I'm not going to browbeat them. Um, but I can talk to the organizers. Now, this has happened in my own community where I am a leader, and I learned this from George Marshall. I put my George Marshall Buddha smile on, and I walk off the stage, and I go down to a foursome and say, I'd like to invite you to join this other set. Now, I could not have come up with that on my own. That was George. I'd like to invite you with his, with his Buddha dust sprinkled over them, and they, yes. they go and they, they join it. You know, and that's a larger community conversation. Um, but I've also been at places where the organizer wants me to affect some kind of big change. And, you know, at this point in my life, I learned, ooh, that's a red flag. But I haven't always known that. I haven't always known exactly what I'm supposed to do there. So then, again, step back and look at the bigger intention. And the dancers win. The, the dancers win. They, they get to have their intention honored. As long as it's respectful and it's all about being connected and having good fun over what an organizer might want, I think, you know, then you just have a a conversation with that organizer and say, let's come up with some ideas for you around this. Yeah. So can you say more about your, your intention as, I guess, as, as a caller or, you know, what is it that allows you to, to step back and, and reconnect with and and realign with, with an intention? experience, I think. Um, you know, and I do have a number of, of exercises that I teach callers. Um, cross crawl, if you remember cross crawl, where you're mm-hmm. touching your right hand on your left knee and vice versa, and you're kind of marching in place, that realigns your hemispheres. So that if that's what you do when you're feeling nervous, but you then have to state your intention. And if I, and I still get that, sometimes there's a weird buzzing on the floor and I can't figure it out. And I, or there's something going on with the band and I can tell I am discombobulated. I will do cross crawl in the back. And you can also do cross crawl on stage and people will think you're doing some kind of dorky dance, which is fine. <laughs> you can even do it sitting down. But what it does is then I set the intention. Yeah. And quite often it's just, I'm going to have a good time because I can tell I'm tightening up. And as I do that, I'm looking out at the crowd and I know it's done when my body feels relaxed and my whole body says, yep, you're going to have a good time. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do a good job tonight. That's another one. I'm going to do a good job. I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to do a good job. Yeah, that's the biggest one. And if something really wacky happens, <laughs> I, I, I actually step out of the calling space to think about it. Hmm. Like actually physically, like, whoa, something weird's happening. I mean, so that's physically taking a step back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that actually works for me. It's like, I am not in that calling space right now because I need to take a big look at this hall and figure out what's going on. Yeah. I'm realizing, so, you know, we've been talking a lot about kind of contras and squares sort of, um, not interchangeably, but I guess, can you kind of outline the the different styles of, of dance that you call and, and the different... Um, communities that you're 
that you're part of and and how do you how do you see that landscape um you know where oh that's a good question yeah where do they cross over where do they where do they not they don't all cross over and that's okay and i think that's one thing that i would encourage contra dancers to understand is that contra dancing is not the be all end all of of good social dancing um you know, as anybody who looked at David Millstone's fabulous history of square dancing can see with all the video examples he had from the Maritimes and from the South and the West, people are doing great dancing. It may not look like anything you're interested in, but if you watch them, they're having a great time. That's what's important. So, you know, I call squares for contra dancers uh, for the most part. So these are squares where everybody's moving, everybody's active, they're accessible, they're, the pattern repeats. But I also love visiting couple squares and um, slightly more complicated Western squares. And I can only do those at dance camps. And that's fine. Having a whole week to build up a program of that kind of square dancing, that's fine for me. Mm-hmm. And hopefully at some point in New England, we'll get more traditional square dance going. You know, and I do English dancing and couple dancing and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you do see some crossover, but but um, again, it's just a reminder. Everybody has their has their preferences. Yeah. And it feels like it feels like an honor when, for example, when I'm I'm at a week that's mostly English, but they've asked me to call contras. What an honor that is for me to be surrounded by a whole week of that and then get to do some contra dancing. Yeah. It's great. It's great. With a different crowd. And you, you call contras to mostly English dancers, and they look different. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> They're more on their toes, and they're on time. <laughs> Weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I wonder, I wonder if we can, you know, maybe take, take a bit of a long view. And I'm, I'm curious what changes from your perspective you've, you've seen in the dance community, uh, and what changes are happening now? That's two different questions. So maybe just start with what, what changes have you seen? Well, in the community or in the dancing itself, I think the community has pretty much remained more or less the same, I would Uh, hope. Yeah. Um, just with that same basic desire of, we want connection. We want synchronicity with the music, with each other. Yes, there have been some ge- interesting generational things, and then everybody has to work around that. Changes around the language, people have to work around that. But I think people still have the same intention when they come to a dance. Mm-hmm. But I've certainly seen the changes in the style, in the music, in the choreography. Holy cow. Yeah. Can you, That's can been you describe? Fun. Can you describe some of those changes? Yeah, well, as I said, because the music has gotten faster and it's more of a smooth, it can be more of a smooth style. Plus, we've got all this um, fun drama that we can do with a blues jig, you know, a minor jig. Or you can ask for something jazzy and actually get something that's jazz-based. Or um, you can really create a drama in a program if you've got a band that can that's interested in, in having a really lots of colors. Um We've got a lot of figures from modern Western. And what's interesting is that when they first came, like Pass the Ocean, I think Tom Hines had one of the first Pass the Ocean dances. 
people couldn't get that concept. They didn't understand past the ocean. So I remember I called it pass through to a wave. Also because it, it fit rhythmically better pass through to a wave. Yeah. Past the ocean's a funny kind of rhythm. But then I started learning modern Western square dancing, which I love. And I would recommend anybody who likes no walk through contrast, go learn some modern Western. Wow. Yeah. You'll be thrilled. Um, I realized, no, it's really important. If we want crossover, the names have to be the same. Oh. So it's past the ocean. And it used to be, um, you know, and I call box circulate, whereas it used to be rotate the set. Hmm. Why not call it what it is? Yeah. It's like, yeah, because we do have crossover now, which is really exciting. You know, the only thing that I think is interesting is, is about making sure contrasts stay accessible. It's so incredible that we've got all this amazing choreography, yet you could be a brand new dancer. You don't need a partner. I, that is so important. You don't need a partner and you will be welcomed and mm -hmm. you can learn the basic moves. But if we make things too difficult, the way modern Western did, um, we'll lose people. So I hope we, we really keep that accessibility. And, and part of that, I think, is, is having beginner sessions, welcoming sessions. What do you, so as you're, as you're seeing changes, um, you know, I feel like sometimes those changes in style or tastes can fall along generational lines, sometimes not, you know, there's, there's different, different factors involved always and in, in kind of what, what becomes popular, what gets picked up by the crowd. But um, as you said earlier, <laughs> change is hard, change is, hard. <laughs> I think that's big, it's hard. And of course, all our cliches, you know, it's, it's the most, it's, it's the constant, it's the thing you can count on. So, but how do you, how do you navigate you know, mm. if you are observing, maybe particularly in your home, in your home community, you know, fractures around changes that are happening in the dance community. Um, I, you've brought up the um, several, multiple stages of, of trying to make a shift away from mm. gendered language, for example. And I know that that's, that's a challenge and, and some people have felt alienated uh in both right. directions you know whether whether they would, would like the the ladies and gents terms to stay or whether they they people find those terms really make make their dancing experience not not viable or, or enjoyable so you know though those moments of tension that that those changes and shifts produce how 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 do you especially in, I guess in your dance community where maybe you have a, you know more investment more um, a more significant leadership role what what do you what do you do in the in the face of all that you know I learned a lot when uh, the Thursday night dance was going to be moving from its second home it had started at the VFW it had moved up to a place called Spring Step. And we needed to figure out if we were going to go to the scout house. And so I decided to do an informal poll. The obvious questions about venue were there, but I wanted to know what's happening socially. Oh my gosh, what an eye opener. I am so glad I did it. And it basically was a question about, tell me about your dance experience here. Hmm. 
holy cow, the stuff I learned. So that was right around the time that we did have an influx of teenagers. They're, they're now in their 30s. Um, and a lot of older dancers were saying, I love the younger dancers, but, and then there'd be a complaint. Mm-hmm. And then the younger dancers would say their experience. You know, the older dancers are always trying to tell me what to do, but, and I thought, holy cow, that's a, that's a really interesting <laughs> problem we have there. I also learned at that point, we had a, a we were unusual in the country at that point. We had a, a, a big gender imbalance back when it mattered hmm. to, to some dancers. And we had a lot of extra men, which was very, very rare. I think it's all the engineering schools here. And to hear these men say how hard it was for them to get partners. And I, I, they put their name on the survey and I was shocked. These were fabulous dancers. Hmm. So that opened my eyes to making sure I looked around to see who wasn't dancing and to go ask them to dance. Mm -hmm. That was great. And you can do that from the mic. And I learned that from Scott Higgs more than two or three times an evening to say, please look to the sides invite somebody who's sitting out to dance. But also, I didn't know what to do about this generational issue. So I went to people who might know. I went to teachers. And Debbie Knight, who's a musician and teaches biology, I love it. She said, you know, it's, it's not their biological urge for kids to be dancing with people their parents' age. It's their urge to be with their own age group. And I thought, oh my gosh. That is brilliant. Wow. Yeah, so we shouldn't be blaming them that they're not adapting to our culture. And that's when I came up with this idea of it's up to us as the established dancers to go talk to them and meet them where they are. Don't insist that they dance with you. Just keep getting in their face by saying, hi, so-and-so, how are you? (laughs) You know, that kind of thing. And then also to make sure that the committee was visible so that when there were discomforts around uh, particular issues that dancers of, of any age knew they had people they could go talk to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So important. And does having those uh, identifiable, you know, people in charge or committee members uh, help your job as a caller? Because a lot of people think the person at the mic's in charge. Oh, yeah. Oh, it does. It does. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It does. Yeah. And, and and that's why it's important to identify them. Mm-hmm. You know, what was interesting was when BIDA, the Boston Intergenerational Dance Advocates, first started, it was kind of an outgrowth of the Youth Dance Weekend that was taking place at that point, I think, in Vermont. Yeah. And um, I think Ethan Hazard Watkins came up to me and said, so I just did this workshop for musicians, but now they're trying to figure out how to get hired. And I said, well, the easiest thing is to, to start your own dance, which is what they did. Yeah. And they started BIDA. And I was going to call the first dance. And they give me, gave me a list of 10 things they wanted me to say throughout the evening. And I said, this is too much. People aren't going to listen to this. But I had just been in a high school where they had all these aphorisms and affirmations Um, like on the walls. And I said, but if you wrote them up as posters. So that's what they did. And they still have them. I'm so proud of that. They may not know that that came from me, but it did. So it's things like um, dance in different parts of the hall or, um, you know, that kind of thing. 
things mm-hmm. that they wanted the community to know. You know, have an issue, talk to one of our safety officers. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing. So that you could read it and know it was there, but you didn't have to be pummeled with it from the mic. Yeah. I'm, I'm wanting to wrap up soon. I, I uh, Well, first of all, is there anything else that you want to say about, you know, about the change in gendered gendered language just and I didn't ask you directly about it so oh no this is really interesting so I was hired for English week at Pinewoods and English week decided to try to be as gender neutral as possible and at this point in time in 2022 English dancing doesn't have um, a standard language for neutral role terms there Mm -hmm. is positional calling but not every caller does that So I had this really interesting laboratory. So most of my dancers were hardcore English dancers. And in my contra class, I said, every day we're going to use different terminology. Mm. And you tell me how you feel about it. And so I started with men and women, which was actually really hard for me to call because it's been years. (laughs) And then the next day, I think I did gents and ladies and then I had Jets and Rubies, Larks and Robins. And actually, at that point, I was using Larks and Ravens. And somebody said, well, since you're having this conversation, many of us on the West Coast are using Robins. I'm like, okay, we'll try Robins. And then I went through every permutation of the figure formerly known as Gypsy, now known as Right Shoulder Round. Mm-hmm. And I, in, in one dance, I did that in one dance. I called a different thing. And I said, <laughs> you can be vocal. Tell me what you think about it. And it was hysterical. And because by the end of the week, people came up and said, it doesn't matter. I mean, obviously, to certain people, it did matter about the gendered part. But the people who are feeling resistant to that change and wanted to keep it gents and ladies, they were the ones who came up and said, I get it. Uh Uh-huh. We're still dancing. Yeah. I love that. And, And my biggest advice to any caller who's having trouble making the switch it does make style a bit more challenging to have Larks and Robins only because people aren't staying with the same role. The trick I've learned to do is if you've got a dance where the Larks have an Alamand left, you say, raise your hand if you're a Lark. Mm-hmm. And it's great because you see two or three people go, me? No. Me? Yes? No. No. And then you've solved it for them. <laughs> and there's no embarrassment when the music starts because they did the walkthrough. Yeah. And you can do that for absolutely every dance. Raise your hand if you're dancing the Robin roll. That's great. Yeah, it's great. So help them out. Help them out because it's really not that hard. Yeah. And if you don't want to translate all your handwritten cards, use stickies. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how how have that's such a I mean that's such a great opportunity to to um, especially you know dance dance weeks are so nice for that because you have that mm. more space you know I think yeah. That is the challenge in, you know, our dance series. You just, you have like one, one night at a time and, you know, it's the challenging and interesting thing about, about these dance forms is we don't have, you know, exactly a governing body that's going to, you know, make a decree about what the, what the standardized language. But you know what the successful dance communities did who, who wanted to affect the change? Uh Uh-huh. They took months. And they worked with their community. So I'm thinking of Montpelier and also Amherst. Mm -hmm. They took months. They said, okay, over the next couple of months, we are going to experiment with using Gents Ladies and Larks Robins. And they had some kind of mechanism for feedback. 
Yeah. And what that did was, I mean, it was clear to me as soon as they asked the question, well, we know where it's going to end up. It's going to end up at Larkson Robbins. But allowing the community to sit with it or dance with it for a couple of months before making that decree, so it became a community decision. Yeah. And then they could have those one-on-one -on -one conversations. If you want to know why we're doing this, please come talk to me and I'll tell you why it's important to me. And then I'll, I would want to hear about your, your experience as well. Wow, mm -hmm. that was just so wonderful to see, to see that happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I hear that um, cultivating community, cultivating or making space for, for communication and, and input is seems like something that is really important to you in you know in your your work as a caller and a dancer yeah connection it's all about connection yeah um i i have three kind of shorter closing questions but before we do that is there anything else that i like totally missed or that's on the tip of your tongue that we haven't covered in our in our Law are wonderful long conversations. <laughs> it's, it just it blows my mind how the time flies in these. I know, these I know. Chats. Well, we're I'm geeking like, out, Mary. We, we are. love geeking out. Yeah. Oh, you know that's actually another thing when you asked about keeping it fresh and keeping it interesting. It's being able to talk with my buddies, with my caller buddies. Mm -hmm. You know that really is great. Yeah, talking shop. Yep. <laughs> the the things that not that maybe not everybody can understand or experience and then just having someone who's like yes <laughs> get it get it feels so good um okay so here are here are my three closing caller questions um the first one is how do you keep your dances do you have dance cards do you have binders with printouts have you gone to a full computer database what's your your filing system it's, it's a database that I print out into a spiral book. Um, and now I may end up just using my iPad. I'm just terrified of um, not having electricity. <laughs> but I think yeah. I could take, I think I could take the spiral book along with the, um, with like an iPad. Because for me, it's always about making notes. I love to make notes. And, um, and I can certainly do that with an iPad. Okay, and next question. Do you have any pre or post gig rituals? Things that you do to, to get ready uh, to, to get on stage or you know after a dance that you, you know to kind of transition? Water before, during, after. Mm -hmm. Water is one of the best. Um, I'm sure I do, but it feels like it's been so long. I know. Um, like personal personal rituals, yeah. I I, I just want to make sure my calling space feels good. So in this one thing I got from Kalia Cleveland, who's a, an English mostly an English caller in California, is she has a portable music stand that collapses, and it's great. So it's great for my book, my spiral bound book with dances. Um, yeah. So I like to carry that with me. I have my microphone and a chair. Yeah, so the ritual of making sure my space feels good mm -hmm. is really you, my calling space feels really good. That's that's key. Yeah, and it sounds like you have those materials with you that are that are con consistent. Yeah. Um, okay, last last question. This is my own my own personal um, uh, sociological in inquiry about callers. Um, 
And you may or may not know, but if you know, do you identify as an introvert or an extrovert? <laughs> Both. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, hmm. not everybody has like a ready, you know, answer. Well, I need my quiet time. Um, I'm sure people would think of me as an extrovert, but boy, um, don't forget that's a performance. Yeah. So I'm right on the introvert extrovert line there. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's you know, cause I'm kind of paid to be an extrovert. Yeah. So yeah, I'd say I, I tend more towards the introversion introversion there. Yeah. I'm not shy, but I do feel a bit more introverted than extroverted wanting to go out and experience absolutely everything. And I really do value my, my personal time and the personal time doesn't have to be being quiet. I mean, Mm -hmm. I love walking and I love walking by myself. So yeah, I think of that as more of an introverted. Yeah. Yeah. Mary, here's a good question for people. Ooh, tell me. Do you have a uniform? Oh, do you get dressed? Because I think like I know Will Mentor has his uniform. Oh, my gosh. Yes. His crisp white shirt and his khakis and his his vest. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious if men think about getting dressed for the dance. I certainly do. I mean, number one is comfort. Number one is comfort. But hey, I've also got some really cool earrings I want to wear. So, yeah. So I'd be curious to know from people. Yeah. Should add that to the gig ritual um, thing, but yeah, what, yeah. Do, you, do you have a? Do you have? I, well, I do think about getting dressed. I yeah. do get dressed for the gig, absolutely, mm-hmm. and it has to be comfortable and all of that. But um, and I enjoy getting dressed for the gig. Yeah. All right. Well, Lisa Greenlee, thank you so much for for coming to visit. Oh, uh, Mary Wesley, thanks for having me. I, I'm a big fan of this project, so I wish you all the best. Thank you. A big thanks to Lisa for taking the time to speak with me. There's more from our conversation that we couldn't fit in the episode, so be sure to check out the show notes at podcasts.cdss.org to hear more. And thank you for listening to From the Mic. This project is supported by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society, and is produced by Ben Williams and me, Mary Wesley. Thanks to Great Meadow Music for the use of tunes from the album Old New England by Bob McQuillan, Jane Orzachowski, and Deanna Stiles. Visit podcasts.cdss.org for more info. Happy dancing! The views expressed in this podcast are of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect those of CDSS.